Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Yas van der Westhuizen. Yas is completing his PhD in engineering at Cambridge University. Yas, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you, Sam. So uh, we were joking earlier, you're kind of in this weird intermediary state, intermediate state between having finished all of the requirements for your PhD and kind of waiting to get the actual degree conferred. Tell us a little bit about your, your background and what you studied at Cambridge. Yeah, so uh, in all honesty, I, uh, I fell into the machine learning uh, field a bit by accident. And I, uh, I think this, this story is kind of true for a lot of people with the big hype, the big current hype. Um, so where it all started is I, I started with biomedical engineering undergrad. I'm South African and uh, I, I studied at Stellenbosch University over there. And uh, straight out of the, the undergrad, I realized that I still want to learn a bit more. So I, I started a, a master's in like effectively computational neuroscience. And this is where I really had like my first, uh, my first little experience with machine learning. We played with like basic models like linear discriminant analysis and uh, like self-organizing maps. And actually like halfway through the master's, uh, I was accepted at Cambridge and actually Oxford um, and like received scholarships for both. So I was, I was quite happy and I decided to stop the master's to go start a PhD uh, at Cambridge. And uh, my initial like plan was to do, I, it was, I think a bit, a bit ambitious, but my initial plan was to, <laughs> I wanted to effectively create like a, a wristwatch that could like measure anything about your body, like kind of look at detail uh, at your blood and like tell you, for example, to like uh, today you have to eat a banana, otherwise tomorrow you're going to get a heart attack. That kind of that level of accuracy. Huh. So kind of like uh, a tricorder prize type of device. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And then my supervisor at the time told me like, oh well, there's a range of problems that you have to solve to get to this end product. And she said uh, one of the like most fundamental ones is probably like analyzing these signals and and making predictions. So uh, I kind of started. Yeah, I guess looking at ways of like analyzing these signals and making predictions and just speaking around in our, in our really awesome lab, uh, I heard about like these temporal machine learning techniques that, that could easily solve this problem. And that's kind of where I started playing with them. And um, like I played with Hader Markov models, which is like a more conventional technique and also with some of the new deep learning techniques like recurrent neural networks. And uh, I, I guess after seeing my first few lines of like um, of gradient descent, happening uh, I completely fell in love with deep learning and that's that's where it all kicked off yeah have you been seeking to apply what you've been learning about machine learning and deep learning back to these biomedical applications or have you totally dived into the more theoretical side of ml and, and deep learning yeah so that's a, a really good question actually so the start of my PhD was very uh, leaned heavily towards uh, biological applications. And I guess my whole thesis has this whole um, theme as well. Uh, but pretty early on, we realized that, well, my supervisor and I realized that it's a very like tough field with a lot of red tape and it's hard to get data. It's hard to get anything implemented. There's a lot of like bureaucracy in, in some areas. Um, and I didn't like to like struggle with this during my PhD. So I think halfway through, uh, we decided that it might be good to kind of 
slightly pivot towards a more theoretical uh, kind of thesis. So it has like both aspects. Um, but I, I feel strong, like I have a strong opinion that like it's the biological field because it has all of these barriers, we need to like put a lot more effort into it. Uh, so I'm quite happy that I could kind of put a lot more effort into that, that kind of side. Yeah. And you mentioned that you're planning to start a company. Is it based on the work that you've done at Cambridge? Um, so not really. It's uh, it's based on Cambridge in a way because uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I had to, because I'm from South Africa. What I had to do quite often in Cambridge is uh, do like a Skype call back home or a WhatsApp call or all of these internet-based calls. And like after the PhD, well, I guess like even before the PhD, I knew I wanted to to try and start a company. And um, having like I'm sure uh, you and a lot of other people have experienced the like. Uh, the poor quality in any internet-based call like Skype or, or a WhatsApp voice call. And uh, essentially I thought, well, why don't we just try and fix this? Like machine learning currently has, has achieved remarkable things in terms of generating super resolution images and like doing video interpolation. Um, so essentially that's kind of how, how uh, my colleague and I started out with uh, the new idea that we're trying to pursue. You're not calling it Pied Piper, are you? <laughs> uh, I'm glad you made that connection. We're not pulling up. Um, That's probably yeah. a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the papers that uh, came out of your PhD is called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of the Forget Gate. How did that work come about? Yeah. So, um, well, uh, maybe I'll just quickly say where the name came from. Uh, I have to give homage to Andre Karpathy, who. He, uh, he had a blog post called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of RNNs, uh, Recurrent Neural Networks. And uh, I think a lot of people really love this blog post. And I also love it. I read it. Um, so that's kind of where the name inspiration came from. But to, to jump back to the question, essentially in the, the final parts of my PhD, uh, I started working a bit like I looked at two things at the same time. Uh, one was this biological application that we had, which was to essentially infer from peripheral neural signals uh, what an agent or what a human or some animal is doing uh, based on those signals. And uh, essentially, if you want to create a prosthetic device that can like in real time uh, react to these neural signals, it has to be very low powered and very resource efficient. So we'd already ha we already had a solution that could infer what uh, the human is doing based on those signals, but now we needed to uh, make it much more computationally efficient. So that was like the, the one driver. The, the second or the thing I was working on in parallel was I, I looked at initialization techniques for, uh, in general, kind of, I guess, neural networks or deep learning models, uh, but also specific, more specifically for LSTMs or the long short-term memory uh, recurrent neural network. And um, I, I, yeah, I guess I played around with various uh, approaches to initialization for LSTMs and with um, ways of like, I guess, quantizing them or pruning them or making them more efficient. And then I happened to stumble upon this architecture that, that I've explained in, in the paper, uh, which essentially did like, first of all, we were surprised, okay, it, it kind of saves computation, but then, yeah, we were really surprised when it did a lot better than the original LSTM. Um, so, yeah. Huh, interesting. Yeah, before we get too far, I should probably note, because there's somebody that's jumping up out of their chair on the on the BART or something like that, 
that uh, the whole unreasonable effectiveness thing dates back before Carpathy to uh, (laughs) a guy, Eugene Wigner, who wrote a paper, The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics and the Natural Sciences, back in 1959. But we we were joking a little bit before we started the interview that I I noted that I've gone through the the math of RNNs uh, several times, and it's not quite intuitive to me. And you mentioned that you have the same experience having studied it uh, for your degree as well. Uh, maybe a good place to start is to you know, talk about the, the or LSTMs in particular, the, the role of gates in LSTMs. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, could, I guess I could give a, a little history of how it all developed. Um, essentially, uh, recurrent neural networks were designed because they, they share parameters across this time dimension. So it makes them a lot more efficient, kind of like the same way that uh, convolutional neural networks share parameters across the, the spatial dimension, the 2D spatial dimension. Um, but one problem you run into with recurrent neural networks is that uh, because you're kind of over time, you're multiplying the same weights or the same uh, information with each other the whole time, um, you run into, you usually run into gradient problems. Um, and back in, I think it's 97. Hochreiter and Schmidhuber uh, realized that, okay, or I, I guess they, they approached this from like a slightly different direction, but they thought that, uh, or argued that uh, you have, when you do backpropagation, you have through a, a recurrent neural network, uh, some of the, like if you, if you want to remember something and you want to forget something of the, the input sequence, there's kind of conflicting updates through the same edges. So they thought or proposed that if you use an input and output gate, this could kind of solve that that conflict and kind of protect. Uh, so in the RNN cell, it could kind of protect the the cell or the memory from these conflicting updates. Um, and this worked pretty well. And then I think a few years later, uh, it was Gars in 2000 who um, he, he realized that uh, this works well, but you can have if if the the memory cell of the RNN uh, or the the like, I guess the state uh, doesn't have a mechanism of forgetting some of the information. It, there's a possibility that it could grow indefinitely and kind of uh, break down the, the network. So he proposed a forget gate, and this would then allow the cell to kind of forget some of the information um, over time. And that's that's kind of the LSTM that we know today. That's kind of how the, the gates help the LSTM to prevent these gradient problems during training. Got it. And the, so the forget gate is part of the typical LSTM that is is commonly in use nowadays. Yes. So so the typical LSTM has three gates: the input gate, which controls uh, how much information is input at each time step; the output gate, which controls how much information is output to the next cell or to your output layer uh, at each time step; and then the forget gate, which essentially just says how much should I forget at each time uh, time step. I'm trying to get at kind of your observations about the forget gate and what kind of caused you to start looking at that as a uh, an interesting part of this this approach. In 2015, uh, there were two papers that kind of at the same time said or concluded that the forget gate is is the most important part of the LSTM. Uh, they did like these ablation studies that removed a few gates at a time, and and they kind of found that every time you remove the forget gate, like the the performance just drops drastically. Um, and this was, I think, Josephowitz and uh, Greff. Uh, and essentially, that's kind of, that was kind of my starting point. I realized, like, okay, let's if, if they say it's this important, let's uh, remove everything we can and just keep the forget gate. 
and uh, and see where we go from there. And that was kind of that was um, yeah, it, it had a decent performance, but like on a typical data set called MNIST that I think everyone is everyone knows this pretty well now. Um, if you kind of if you process that in scanline order, uh, you get many subsections that are like have ten or twenty consecutive zeros. And essentially, this makes it super hard for the network, if it's only for GetGate, to remember anything by the end of those, zero, uh, like, 10 or 20 zeros. Uh, so that's where I had to, like, I realized, okay, we need to kind of initialize this better to be able to kind of uh, retain memory over those uh, periods of zeros. You know, I guess what's interesting about this is that it's counterintuitive. So you use the forget gate and the memory, but not the input and output gates. And... Uh, found that you had this uh, performance improvement. Yeah, yeah. So essentially, I saw, I saw this example recently. So if you if you like take an image and you want to classify what's in it, essentially what like a network or what you could visualize it as is like you remove every single element of that image except the the part that you care about. For instance, if it's a panda, you remove like all the buildings, branches, and like trees behind it, and you just left with the panda face or something. Um, so essentially, like that could be summarized as. Uh, to learn something you just need to know what you need to forget um, and I guess like that's kind of kind of in a way what happens here but it's it's not completely true because we have the, we have only one gate which is the forget gate but this gate at the moment or in the new network controls both how much information is for, forgotten and also how much new information comes in so it's kind of it's coupled uh, with this gate just like performing both of those roles is is that observation? that learning is primarily about forgetting at odds with the emphasis on attention-based methods that are you know, seem less about forgetting and more about trying to figure out what to remember? I, I think it's all just semantics in a way. It's just how, how you phrase it or perceive it, yeah. So uh, it could be either way. And I think attention mechanisms could also be said as like, oh, well, attention mechanisms just make sure that you kind of forget about the rest and focus on something uh, that's like relevant. Uh, so it's just how you perceive it, I guess. I'm curious, have you tried applying them in concert with one another? You know, I'm thinking of uh, forgetting all the way down. <laughs> all right. Uh, no, I haven't. So you mean like applying uh, this new network with attention mechanisms? Right. No, I haven't tried that, but that's, <laughs> that's a pretty cool idea. <laughs> Based on this, you were inspired to create another network architecture called mm -hmm. Janet. Uh, what, yep. what is Janet about? Um, so Janet is essentially the network that we've been discussing now. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's the, the Janet is just the name I gave for this new, um, I guess, way of processing information uh, or this, I guess, simplified version of the LSTM. I, uh, I, we chose the name kind of in a, in a lab meeting. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but... I'll, I'll try. Um, essentially, uh, I don't think that this is like a network that would def like is the best. Um, and because people make so many new networks every day, it's just like this is just another one of those. So it's just another network in that sense. <laughs> but it happened to also uh, be a nice little acronym for Yoss's Awesome Network. Uh, so we kind of have this little lab joke about it. But yeah. Okay. So, I, you know, I think what threw me off in thinking that it was a... Uh a different network was the pictures that I've seen of it still have these other gates in them, or at least what it looked like to me, these other gates. Uh, am I reading those pictures incorrectly? 
what what pictures have you seen? <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, so the the uh, the gates in in the Janet are essentially it's just one gate, which is the forget gate of the LSTM. So it's like the Janet is just the LSTM with everything removed except for the forget gate. So your paper was kind of presenting an analysis of this network and its performance on uh, MNIST and and potentially other data sets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so I guess we um, uh, there are a few papers who like uh, that bring out new types of recurrent neural networks. This this memory problem, or I guess both the memory problem over very long sequences and uh, the problem of exploding and vanishing gradients uh, is quite a quite a big problem. So you have quite a few of these papers that just uh, kind of have these benchmark memory tests. Um, and that's kind of what we try to follow over here. So one of them is MNIST, which has this hard problem, as I mentioned before, of like consecutive zeros. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's perturbed MNIST, which we also tested on, which essentially just does a random permutation of, of all the pixels in... Um, in the MNIST image. And this kind of creates longer dependencies over time if you process this in scanline order. And then there are a few others. Uh, the two we test is the, the add and the copy task. And essentially it's just for the add task, it's two sequences where one is zeros and ones and the other one are is continuous values. And wherever you have ones in the, the binary sequence, you need to add those um, corresponding numbers in the, the continuous valued. Uh, sequence so it's like it kind of tests the the memory of this network and then the same for the the copy task just needs to remember everything at the the start of the sequence all the way to the end and be able to regenerate that at the end um so yeah and then obviously we've tested it on on a few other data sets uh since then uh for the paper we also tested it on one of my biological data sets called mit bih arrhythmia data set which is like a data set of ecg heartbeats that uh are, have, are classified into five different types of heartbeat arrhythmias. Um, and it worked better on, on that data set as well. And when you say better relative to whatever the state of the art is on these data sets or relative to vanilla LSTMs? Yeah, so for um, the data set, uh, I mean, the MIT, the ECG data set, uh, there aren't that many, like, I guess, state of the art results. So we just compared it to the LSTM and it does better than the LSTM. Um, on, the, on the other data sets, it's kind of it's harder to say. So, in all cases, the Janet does better than the LSTM on those data sets. But then there are like different, I guess, models that do even better than the Janet. So, like the WaveNet does. Uh, I, I'm sure you're familiar with, or yeah, the WaveNet is the, a, a new, very good model by DeepMind, mm-hmm. and that model does quite well on perturbed MNIST, but then does slightly worse than Janet on the normal MNIST. And yeah, you have quite a few of the similar nuances for other models um, that have also been proposed. What was the role of uh, the way you initialized the network in the results you saw? For the Janet to work on data sets like MNIST, uh, you have to initialize it using this Chrono initialization scheme that we proposed in the paper. Uh, but this, the initialization scheme was initially proposed by Talek and Oliver. It's a, also a really, really cool paper in 2018, published at iClear. Um, but... So, so if you don't use that initialization scheme for MNIST, it would like the Janet wouldn't learn anything. You would kind of have this accuracy around five percent throughout training. Um, for and then for for tasks that are slightly easier to learn that don't have like long consecutive periods of zero, uh, the the Janet like can still learn, but it definitely does a lot better if you use this initialization scheme. 
for for the LSTM, um, you also get some benefits. Uh, I guess like more stability during training if you use chrono initialization, but it, the benefits aren't as clear as it is for the Janet. And how does the initialization scheme work? Yeah, so essentially what Talek and Oliver found was that uh, if you, or the I, I guess the characteristic for getting time of, of the RNN is, uh, sorry, of the LSTM is, uh, is one over the forget gate value. So at the start, if you're, if we initialize it according to the, um, the way we always initialize forget gates, uh, you essentially have a, a really small value um, for the forget gate or a relatively small value. This means that you're forgetting the, the amount of time steps you can go through before you forget everything that you, um, that you saw before it is, like, is limited to probably four or five time steps. Um, and this is problematic if you, have, uh, if you need to kind of retain memory over longer periods. Um, and they kind of said, well, okay, we can, we can be smarter about how we initialize the forget gates. Uh, well, all the gates, in fact. And that is essentially to, like, at, at the start of training, the values that matter a lot for, for the LSTM is the, the biases. And initially, or traditionally, we've always just um, initialized them to be zero. But Talek and Oliver kind of said uh, we should initialize them as the log of a uniform distribution between one and the maximum number of time steps we have. And that kind of gives you, uh, that makes sure that some of the, the forget gates kind of uh, re- allow the, the network to remember very long periods up to the end of the, the sequence. And some of them are still like short-term kind of cells, which kind of can't forget at every second or third step. What's the intuition for why this specific kind of, well, first of all, uh, did you try other initialization schemes uh, with Janet? And if so, and there was kind of a binary, you know, work didn't work kind of situation, what's your intuition for why this one, you know, performed uh, whereas others didn't? Yeah, so I did I did try a few other initialization schemes. Um, I, I'm sure I've forgotten a few of them as well because this was kind of year done quite a while ago. But the, like one, one of the things I tried quite a lot is, or I saw from, um, I saw from Hochreiter and Schmidt Huber that they, they tried this thing in 97 as well, which they just, uh, they randomly guessed some of the initial parameters between like certain values. And if you do that enough, you can actually get a network that uh, does as well as a trained one without actually ever training it. You just initialize it to this perfect uh, like network. I tried something similar where I would, I know kind of what our current initialization schemes are. And uh, I would kind of guess random parameters in, in those ranges and see uh, kind of if, if this kind of yields any better networks that you can then train from or like uh, uh, improve from. Uh, but this unfortunately didn't work or it, it gave the same results or like the same performance as you would get with a normal LSTM initialization. And then beyond that, I, yeah, I don't think, I can't remember anything else I tried. And and how did you contextualize this within the sphere of biological applications for your thesis? Yeah, so I think I mentioned before that we were like we were searching for a variant of the LSTM that is uh, computationally more efficient than just the the normal one. So there are, there are various ways you can do this. Some of them are like uh, it's called pruning, which uh, I, it comes from way back, and um, Another one is quantization, where essentially you just you kind of 
quantize the, the weights to be uh, kind of, yeah, certain values that don't take up too much memory and computation. And then I guess like I was kind of uh, impressed by the, the gated recurrent unit, which is like another version of re recurrent neural networks, uh, which only use two gates instead of the three that the LSTM uses. So I, I was like, oh, can we do, can we do one better than the, the GRU? Can we just have one gate and, and still do as well? So yeah. And then, sorry, I, I just remembered something from the previous question, which is uh, in terms of initialization, one thing that I kind of found at the end was when we started using more units in the layers of the, the Janet and the LSTM, uh, we found that the Janet kind of, um, instead of just doing better at the end, it kind of also learned a lot quicker. So it would get to the, the highest point of accuracy a lot quicker than, than it would with uh, less units, which is kind of, yeah, that makes sense. But then I thought like a really cool thing we can try is to play around with this as in like, it's kind of, if you have a really big Janet, you can kind of just guess the right solution or very close to the right solution from the start and then remove a lot of units to save computation and then just train the rest to kind of give you that, that perfect model. Um, so that's something in terms of initialization that I think is also worth pursuing. Is that a potential feature direction or did you get specific results with that? That that's a potential future direction. I uh, yeah, I've I've been slightly busy with other things since then, but yeah, that's <laughs> something it. I want to play with. Yeah, got it. What's the uh, in general the impact of getting rid of the other gates on the computational intensity of training one of these networks? In terms of like computational time, it doesn't improve things that much, and also I guess in in just the feed forward processing time during during testing. Uh, because a lot of your like computational time is limited by the sequential nature of, of the LSTM, uh, which in the case of the LSTM and the Janet are essentially the same because you need to like process things at every time step. But the, the part where it does save, which also saves on, I guess, battery usage, if this is a device that's to be used in a, in a portable device, uh, sorry, a model to be used in a portable, portable device, um, then having using less memory is, is quite helpful. Um, so the Janet uses half the memory that the LSTM uses and kind of gets better accuracies for, for the data sets that we tested on, uh, which is quite good. And that also meant that we could train much bigger Janets on, on the same GPU, whereas for a, an LSTM, you would quickly run out of memory on the, on the GPU. Did you look at the same memory and, and compute and power implications from a... Uh, an inference perspective with a trained Janet model? Is there any difference there? No, so yeah, so I'm like, it's it's the same on that side. And so for for both uh, like training a model and for doing inference, uh, I guess it saves half the parameters and uh, computational time is roughly the same. It's slightly shorter for the Janet, but nothing significant. <laughs> you noted that you... Um... You know that compared to WaveNet, this uh, you know this underperforms. But is there a place for it within the domain of general-purpose mobile networks, or is it you know do you are there other reasons why it's uh, kind of a research experiment and not necessarily practical? It's it's hard to say off the bat. Uh, I think yeah. I, I don't know this I was I guess at the time very much trapped in this uh, very research focused uh, I guess domain I think like it's not the the ultimate best solution that there is yet I think it's just it was kind of interesting to show that uh, kind of this is how much importance the the forget gate has in in this network 
it's kind of interesting to see. Um, I think there, for, yeah, for each specific problem, you would have to have a, a specific like network and a specific solution that's best suited for that problem. Um, there are some where the Janet could be could be that. Uh, I think specifically in like anything where you have very long term uh, memory requirements and only a single output at the end, uh, and where you kind of have that requirement plus a uh, I guess a resource efficiency requirement. Um, so yeah, I think like the WaveNet is quite like it's quite a, a large network in terms of number of layers, but it uses very little parameters. Um, so yeah, yeah, there are pros and cons in both. Are there specific examples that come to mind of scenarios where you'd have this uh, this you know long sequence in time with a single output? Uh, yeah, so I guess like a lot of biological uh, signals have that feature. So like if you have if you're measuring a heartbeat for a few seconds, that's that's quite a lot of time steps um, that you're that you have to analyze, and then you kind of have to make a single prediction at the end of of all those time steps. So that's like a typical scenario where, where you would have um, a really long sig- signal uh, with a single output at the end. An example where it's not that, that like that is for instance, when you're generating, uh, when you're doing like translation, you have to generate the, uh, or yeah, maybe just, uh, I guess, sentence generation. Uh, you have to generate a, a word at each time step or you have to classify it, its part of speech at each time step. That's kind of not a, a very, long-term dependency or yeah, a long-term dependency with a single output because you're outputting something at each time step. Okay, cool. You mentioned in our conversation, a couple of things that you'd like to play with in the future. Are there areas that you would like to see someone continue working on beyond the the ones we've discussed? No, I think I mentioned all of them. I think uh, just applying this to more data sets, specifically data sets with long-term dependencies and a single output at the end, uh, that that's cool. So if any yeah, if anyone can get more types of data that are like that, I think uh, that would be really interesting to see. And then obviously also like playing around with this new initialization uh, feature where you can kind of almost in the in the first instance guess the correct well very very close to the cor- the correct network and then uh, just do a few more steps of training to get there, like a, a K shot learning approach. Um, I think those would be interesting to see. Cool. Interesting. Well, thanks for taking the time to chat with me about this. Cool stuff. Anytime. Thank you. Thanks, Yas. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.